ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Do you ever wonder just how private your scrolling is on the internet? Is your browsing really that secure? Yes, this week on Download This Show, the government is set to bring in new privacy regulations to strengthen data protection. So exactly what will it look like? Also on the show, how social media companies can tackle disinformation during a time of war. All of that and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show. And in a weird twist of fate, I actually have two guests in the studio. Uh, because you're listening to this on podcast, you have no idea that normally everyone's spread across the country. But the amazing Meg Coffee, uh, digital strategist and managing director of Coffee and Tea, you're actually in the studio. I know. I'm so excited. You're real. I am real for the first time face to face with you. Not AI. Finally confirmed. <laughs> I know. Hard to believe. And Daniel Van Boom, technology correspondent at Capital Brief. Welcome back. Thank you. Glad to be back. Partying like it's 2019. <laughs> <laughs> the good old days. Magical, magical times. All right. Um, nothing more fun than new privacy legislation. There had to be a better throw than that, but that's what I'm committing to. <laughs> uh, we are talking about potential changes in privacy legislation. It has been broached by the government. Daniel, what has been discussed? So much. Uh, so this, um, so the original privacy I act. I really dropped the ball on that intro. Just, <laughs> everyone knows it. That's right. I'll drop the ball on the answer. Um, <laughs> the original privacy act came in, in 1988, which was like before the internet became a thing properly. So in like 2019, the government was like, we should probably give that a look in. Early this year, uh, the attorney general's office handed down its report on potential things that they could do to reform that act. Uh, key among them are things like the ability to del- to delete the the ability to ask companies to delete the data they have on you, to opt out of uh, companies like Facebook and Google from targeting advertisements at you, things of that nature. And now we have the government's response to the responses to that report. God, I love bureaucracy. Yeah, the wheels move slow, man, but yeah. uh, we're getting there. But they're methodical. Uh, so of the things that have been tabled, Meg, what do you think is the most urgent that needs to be dealt with ASAP? Oh, what needs? Oh, that's a good one. There's a lot of them. I think it's probably the fact that we sort of can have control of our own data now. I think that was the one that was the most interesting to me, um, is that we actually can control it and we can say, look, you need to delete my data, that I have the right to request that deletion now. That was that was the one that was the most important to me. What, yes, there are things that we're getting closer to GDPR. We're getting closer to, you know, more regulations around what small businesses need to do. There is a lot in that that I think a lot of people need to pay attention to. But from the the human personal point of view, the thing that I like most about it is that I can say, hey, stop, stop tracking me. What's missing from it? And Because uh, I know you have lots of thoughts and feelings on privacy in general, and you're like the social media strategist that has the most like complex opinions about social media that I've ever met. And it's one of the many reasons why we love having you on the show. <laughs> what do you feel like is, uh, isn't is being discussed that you would like to see discussed? Is there anything that stands out? Look, I think, I mean, it, it is a double-edged sword, right? I love personalization in that I want ads that are the right ads for me. I don't want ads of nonsense. So I like that I can be targeted. 
But at the same time, I don't want all my data being sold. And it's it, it's wrong that I'm not in control of the things that I, I'm, I'm not in control of my own data. And so I think that we do need more regulation around that about controlling your own data and who has access to it. And then what happens when there are breaches? Mm. Because I don't think that we have enough enforcement around that. And I think that that every business, no matter the size, should be responsible for data. If you are collecting someone's personal information and 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 things that are personal, whatever that is, whatever that data point is, you need to have strict precautions in place to protect that. It's horrible to say, but data is the new oil. But these things are important, and all of these data points together are an important profile, and that's really valuable. And I don't think businesses are paying enough attention to that. And so we do need more attention paid to the protection of personal data. There is a bit of a balancing act here, though, isn't there? Because often we talk about, you know, the responsibility shifting on people that manage our data, and we instinctively think of, like, the Facebooks and Googles of this world. But I suppose if we're talking about legislation that exists in Australia, that is going to affect smaller businesses, maybe businesses that don't have as much infrastructure. And I suppose there is a bit of a balancing act here, Daniel, for doing something that puts the data of users forefront, but isn't so onerous that companies and businesses can't keep up. Has there been any consideration for how that's being managed? Yeah, there is. So um, as part of the response, there's a bunch of uh, things that the government said that they will put into legislation next year and a bunch of things they said they've agreed to in principle but need to flesh out more. And, and one of those is the data responsibilities of small companies. They are companies under $3 million in revenue, I believe. And yeah, to that exact point, it's like it does bring to mind the big behemoth companies, but data is everywhere. And so small companies collect a lot of data, sometimes maybe unbeknowingly. And now it is likely that they will... Um, Have to be responsible. Yes. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> you know what that and, was? And, that was teamwork. I yeah, like teamwork. And look, it. it's hard, right? I get it. And you, if you are a small business, you probably don't have the infrastructure. You're not thinking about it as much the security of things mm. and the security of your website or the security of your database or your, your uh, pause system, right? Your point of sale system. But if you are doing these things, if if you are interacting with customers, you need to think about that end-to-end of how you are protecting your customers' data. Meg, you brought up um, GDPR, which is an acronym that it basically it speaks to the privacy legislation that exists in the in the EU. And of course, that's it's basically why every time you go to a website, there's a little thing that says, we use cookies. Are you okay with that? If you're not, go away. How would these kind of proposed changes you know, differ or be similar to what GDPR has, has put in place? Does anyone know? I think it's pulling us in line with GDPR. It's it's bringing us closer to that. I, I don't know that necessarily GDPR is the perfect w- solution, but I think it is a good solution. And I think that, that globally we should be all more aligned. Well, I, I think the other thing to say is that while GDPR is, is the big one, Europe hasn't stayed still. It's moved on since then. And so, for instance, one of the things that the government is very unlikely to do one of the recommendations from the report that it's not likely to legislate is to allow you to opt out of getting targeted advertisements, which is something that uh, the Digital Services Act, which in Europe went into effect in August, allows people to do. 
So uh, obviously Meta makes most of its money, 97% of its money from targeted advertising. Um, And so as a result, it's been reported that they are looking into doing ad-free subscriptions, like 10 euros a month subscriptions for Facebook uh, and Instagram. Wait, 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 ad-free Facebook? Yeah, yeah, ad-free Facebook, ad-free Instagram. This is reported. It hasn't, it's not a fish yet. But yeah, so so actually um, Norway uh, in July started, started finding Facebook $150,000 $150,000 a day per day as long as it does targeted advertising. So it's not just the EU, Norway as well. So we are, so while the GDPR is like something we can aspire to and which I think this le- legislation brings us up to, Europe is moving, you know, forward in ways that we're, we've elected to not catch up to with this. I'm, I'm desperate to ask, would no, you would sign up for, <laughs> you know what question I'm already asked, would you do subscription Facebook? No. Really? Nah, I don't need to pay them. Then I don't. I don't mind the ads. I genuinely don't mind the ads. One thing, if we are talking about international comparisons, that is worth discussing is that uh, California's recently uh, changed its laws, and they've introduced something. And I love the name of this. Uh, it's called the Delete Act, and this kind of speaks to what we were talking about earlier, where there are places around the world that you can. I mean, walk me through the details of it, but you can just delete yourself from from the internet to some degree, right? Yeah. So I, I love this California law. So the California law is basically that it's this brand new law that Governor Newsom has signed in into law that says you as a California resident have the right to request your online data to be deleted. So the data brokers, the people that sell your data, have to delete it. But the thing is, is you have to go to every individual data broker. And that's what I don't like. So it's not like it's a one-size-fits-all go and I sign up and go, hey, delete all of my data. It's There's all these how many different data broker companies out there. Hey, company A, delete me. B, delete me. C, delete me. And there's so many brokers that like that we're some of which are like you're consumer aware of. Like you're aware of your Googles and Facebooks and Twitters and whatnot. But there's all of these other smaller companies that are basically data scraping you at all times so that they can serve you ads. And most people won't, to be honest, most of us won't know their names, Daniel. Yeah, they sound like pharmaceutical companies, actually, like Xperia and Ileon and stuff like that. And actually, I will say in the US, they have it worse because part of their problem with data brokers is that their telecoms companies were selling the location data of people to data brokers. So data brokers could start to advertise as being like, hey, Daniel's walked by that ice cream shop three times today. I think you should advertise him some ice cream. So the amount of data that they have on Australians is, yes, quite concerning. Now I just want ice cream. Just let me talk into my phone. Hey, phone, tell all the advertisers I want ice cream. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology, and culture. Mark Fennell is my name. Ice cream is what I want. And our guests this week are Meg Coffey, digital strategist and the managing director of Coffee and Tea, and Daniel Van Boom, technology correspondent at Capital Brief. It's been a pretty awful couple of weeks in the news. When you combine also not just the conflict in the Middle East, there's also the conflict in Ukraine. There's been a lot of really horrific violence in the news. But combined with that is also misinformation. It seems that social media platforms have been swamped with fake news about the conflicts unfolding around the world. And in fact, it's become much worse than anyone really predicted, Daniel. Yes, it sure has. So obviously in the last 10-ish days, there's been a pretty harrowing conflict in the Middle East, Israel and Hamas. And in the days following that conflict, social media in general, but I would say X Twitter in particular, was swamped with some pretty insane disinformation, what we what we maybe used to call fake news. Uh, among them are videos of like purporting to be attacks 
from Hamas onto Israel that were actually from a video game from 2015. Other things like, again, purported attacks from Israel onto Hamas that were actually attacks from earlier this year or from years ago. Yeah, there's a real don't believe what you see vibe happening on social media right now. And and I say X Twitter in particular because some of the changes that Elon Musk made to the platform after Some. buying it. Well, most. most. But people often talk about the content moderation thing, like he slashed a lot of the team, which is probably a problem. But I would say the bigger problem is the verification badges. So in the past, journalists and official people of some description were given the blue tick. Um, Now, if you pay $8, you get the blue tick. And journalists and official people don't automatically have it. In addition to that, people with that $8 membership can get paid if they get enough engagement. And so now you have this this kind of twin incentive. So if you have the you have the blue tick, it kind of you look official and you want to get as much engagement as possible and so you people now it's not just trolling. People have an incentive to uh, spread that misinformation and it can be harder at certainly at a glance to discern who is who really. We'll get into the I guess the ways in which it's it's we've arrived at this situation and the ways in which we could potentially get out of it. But I I I'm sort of more interested in this on a psychological level, which is as it becomes more ubiquitously understood that the things that you see on the internet may be misinformation, may be disinformation, may just be a mistake, right? Does it change the way in which you interact with the internet? Do you become more distrustful of what you see, Meg? Yes. And as someone who does social media for a living, I shouldn't say that traditional media is more important than ever, But that's exactly where we're at. I think that we are at the point where we need to be relying on our trusted traditional sources that we know are real more than what we see online because we just – online is a fantasy world these days and it is very much – Anybody can make anything online. And that's a great thing. I mean, you know, I am the I am ever the optimist. I always want to see the good in it, right? And I think that the internet is a fantastic place. And I think that technology is incredible and what we can create with it is incredible. And what AI has allowed us to do is is amazing. The art we can create is amazing. But I think that we have to believe, we have to be at the point now that nothing that we see online is real, just like we used to be with magazine covers. When you see a magazine cover, that is not what that person looks like. Mm. And you just have to come to terms and, and understand that. But there's a media literacy that needs to be happening, and I think it needs to be happening at the lowest levels, the, the earliest ages possible. I suppose that the, the part about that I find not maybe not challenging but difficult to navigate is at the moment – Social media has become such a, um, it's a powerful activist tool as well. Honestly, Daniel, what is the impact on us as humans? Really, really bad, I would think, because you, you kind of have a, you, like you said, you, you look askance at like any, any information that you've, you feel like could be designed to target your heartstrings or manipulate you in some way. You kind of look at it and think like, well, well maybe that is the case. I mean, one of the issues I had over the weekend was I saw... Ben Shapiro was trending, who's a very, very famous conservative pundit. And I thought like, oh, what's going on here? What did he say now? And he had shared a photo that I will not describe because it's it's really, really intense. But to put it mildly, it was of a, a dead person, let's say. And then he was trending because it turned out that that photo was apparently generated by AI. And so I thought, all right, well, that's interesting because I had like 50 million impressions kind of thing. Um, and I thought like that might be the most shared AI image maybe ever. And then it turned out that the 
people saying that it was AI were themselves trolling. They had made fake, fake images of it, of it being detected in an AI. Like, is this a real image or an AI detector? Mm-hmm. And so the images actually came from, I think, America's security department. But so they were real. That happened over a series of days. Like the, the narrative was like, this was fake. Actually, no, it's not fake. Oh, it's from the government. And it took me, a digitally literate person, like after days of it happening, five or 10 minutes of like explicitly looking at it to uh, find the veracity. And we're talking about a very famous person. So in the And that's the thing. It took you, a digitally literate person, days yeah. to figure it out. Mm. What hope do we have for the average person on the street who is just who is just an average person living their life consuming media as the average person, right? I think your question to, to Daniel a few minutes ago, what does this mean for humans? We're in a really bad place. I think that this is Again, you know, social media is what I do, but I think social media is really bad and really detrimental to to humans at the moment. I think that it is it has pushed us to a point where we are not meant to be this connected. We are not meant to be this eternally online. And we have lost that ability to communicate with our friends. We've lost that that, you know, I think of back to the Arab Spring and when Twitter was just so incredible a few years ago and what it did for people. We are so far past that. I've slightly struggled over the last couple of weeks. And what I have noticed in the last sort of seven days is that I am accidentally encountering really horrific, visually full-on violence. And it makes, I guess I have a conflict within it because a part of me is like, we can't turn away. There is something awful happening right now. Um, and there's a few awful things happening around the world at the moment. And a part of me is like, we shouldn't be turning away from this. We shouldn't be looking at a sanitized version of this. But then there's another part of me going, every time I open up any of the platforms, except Facebook, to be fair, which is still just cat memes, any platform, I- I'm worried about what I'm going to see. And I kind of navigate it, I kind of navigate in a really different way. And I, and I do wonder if it is changing. Well, if, I wonder if it's changing me, but I, I also wonder if it's changing the way I approach those services now. The thing that in some instances makes Twitter good is how you can track the minute moment to moment happenings. But I think when something is a flashpoint for all the feelings that this conflict, you know, um, brings up, uh, I think distance is probably a better, I mean, that's what I'm doing. Like, I think the noise to signal ratio of moment to moment in something like this is just like so out of proportion that I think, you know, waiting a day or two or three to kind of see the, what, things that have been verified come to the surface but is probably a better approach. That you, you, I, no, I agree with you, but then the other concern I have with that is am I putting my head in the sand as this horrific humanitarian crisis is unfolding? Am I, is, that, is that the right thing to do as well? Because that would be the flip side of that. No, I don't think you're putting your head in the sand because you're acknowledging it. You're, you're aware that it is. It's just you're making sure that you're only consuming the verified news. Humans aren't, we were not meant to be connected and plugged in like this. Mm. We were not meant to have video footage of this stuff put in our faces 24 hours a day. That That is not, I mean, I'm not a psychiatrist, right? I'm not, so I don't know, but I would assume that that is not good for our brains and that is not good for us as humans to have that. So you're making the, the choice for your own personal health to distance yourself from that. You're not putting your head in the sand. You're still getting the information. You're just waiting until it's verified information and you're distancing it. One of the things that we saw, I think, the last week is schools, not just in Australia, but actually around the world, started to warn parents about kids and, and what they can see in the coming, uh, in the coming days. 
I know in the EU and other places, there's actually been more of a push to the social media companies going, hey, this isn't actually, this is a thing that you guys need to manage as well. For lack of a better term, is there a smoking gun here or is it going to come down to a combination of us managing our own sort of digital hygiene whilst also expecting more from our tech companies, Daniel? Um, I think, uh, unfortunately, TBC on that, we'll actually, we'll find out maybe progress on that question soon because the EU, as part of the Digital Services Act legislation I mentioned before, they're investigating Elon Musk basically to say, like, have you done enough to rid your platform of this illegal content, it, deeming the the misinformation illegal? And I suspect that they will pursue like a similar thing in terms of like violent content which young people can see. So I think there is actually a movement on that. I know this is something we've talked about forever and it's always been like, well, maybe some government somewhere will do something about it or maybe some tech company will do something about it, neither of which has happened. But I think we are actually beginning to get movement on that. Meg, what do you think? I think it'll come from both sides. I think this conflict, or which conflict, but I think what's currently happening now might be an impetus to push it a little bit more mixed with the way that Elon is handling Twitter might be an impetus for some of the other tech companies and people just to sort of come together and go, we actually, we need to do something about this. Twitter is off the rails and we we don't want our platforms to be like that as TikTok, as Meta, as whatever. We actually, we need to do something and the consumers are going, yep, we need to fix this. I think, I mean, you'll always be fighting the misinformation, I think, until we can come back with a proper verification. I mean, it. I don't have a solution for it. I think a lot of it does rely on us as humans to, to measure our own consumption. But there is there is pressure on the companies like maybe there hasn't been before. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Mark Fennell is my name and I want you to visualise yourself. You're in your lounge room, you're sitting down, you turn on the screen, you grab a controller and you're destroying the planet. And apparently you're making the earth worse for everyone. Maybe. There's been a, a new article, it's actually on the ABC Science page, about whether or not Video gaming produces more carbon emissions than other kinds of interaction with technology. Walk me through it, Daniel. Yeah, so firstly, it is your fault. Um, no, second. Uh, yeah, so it so, isn't because I haven't played a game since... Well, wait, I did Mario Kart with my kids on the weekend. Damn it! Yeah. Uh, so there's a, actually an Australian researcher that, that tracks uh, how much uh, carbon emissions the global gaming industry produces every year. Um, and so the tech industry is about 80 million tonnes of carbon emitted into the into the atmosphere and gaming is about 15 million of that. But the paradox is, or not the paradox, the, the catch is you probably burn, the, the usage, as in you burn more carbon playing the game than you would using your iPhone. But the reason why the, the tech sphere makes more carbon is because the, the manufacturing in the tech products you buy and also the servers that run big tech, that produces more carbon emissions in the air. I think what you've done is you've highlighted there's a number of paradoxes at play here, right? So it's a question of how do you measure the environmental impact of technology, right? Do you measure it in the act itself? Because for years we've talked about the fact that, for example, mining cryptocurrencies, right? The, the number one thing I can guarantee you, as soon as somebody brings up a cryptocurrency, firstly, I walk away. Secondly, there'll be a person there going, well, it's very bad for the environment and why didn't you talk about that? Every time. And if you're the person prepared to write me that email right now, don't, I'm across it. But there's a debate around certain kinds of technology about the environmental impact, but then we sort of transfer it every time we discuss it, right? So as you say, gaming, yes, because of uh, presumably the amount of computing power required, it probably burns more energy. 
But then you compare it to the manufacturing of these old things, he says as he waves around a mobile phone, forgetting that it's not TV. They produce a, a different kind of environmental impact. And I guess the thing I'm curious about is, do they compare? Everything we do, everything we do is bad for the environment. <laughs> everything we consume. Can you put that on a T-shirt? <laughs> that's Every- made in an unethical factory. No, carry on. Yeah. Everything we touch electronically, everything we consume is is bad for the environment in one way or the other. I think we just have to measure what, how bad is it? Pick your battles, right? Like is... I, surely choose your fighter is, is the yeah. best analogy there. There you go. Can you tell I'm not a gamer? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but the thing is with the usage, it's kind of unfair to be like you, the person playing that gamer at fault, because if the grid was green, then you wouldn't necessarily have though that carbon being emitted, right? Like I think um, Ubisoft, which is a, a very big uh, games manufacturer, they make Assassin's Creed and Far Cry and other games. I think they said that 40, about 40% of their emissions come from people playing the games. Uh, a lot of it comes from like shipping the games to stores and, and stuff like that. And then it gets into like, well, you're emitting carbon playing a game, but if you're sitting on a computer or watching TV, you're also emitting carbon. Really, it's the government's fault is what I want to say. <laughs> or is it Mark's fault? I think it's just Mark's fault. I think it's definitely my fault, um, <laughs> says the guy that got his ass handed to him by a nine-year-old in Mario Kart on the weekend. One thing that I do note from that research is it does say that your publishers and developers, so Microsoft, Sony, Nintendo, they are being more communicative. They've changed their approach to how they they report on the environmental impact of the games. Do you think that is something that shifts consumer behavior? The, the consumer behavior has shifted that. Oh, yeah, because it's the cool thing, hot topic to talk about now. They have to. Everybody has the ESG statement, right? So they, they have to be talking about it. And I don't mean to be flippant about it because it is important, but I do think that it is sort of one of these things that it's like the new – it's the new hot topic, and so everybody's talking about it. Everybody's talking about their their position on climate and their how their company affects climate and what they're doing. And it's important because climate change is here, and we need to be addressing it. I don't know. This one seems just a little bit funny to me because it's just like, do we really – I don't know. I'm not a gamer, but do we really need a study on how much carbon emissions me playing my Nintendo Switch is? Well, I think part of what the researchers in the field are after is just that transparency of, like, Microsoft is is pretty active in terms of uh, making itself green, but of course, it's the most it's the second biggest company in the world, and it's the most well resourced, and most of its emissions come from data centers, so they kind of have existing infrastructure to worry about. Dedicated game developers, especially the big ones, I think the hope is that if they become more transparent, then the market can react. So, like, many consumers want to buy green things. And so if you have that, have that pressure from the market, then mixed with the transparency, then you have an incentive for these companies to uh, develop more efficiently. I will say that they, they have got a metric here. And if you want, you can check out this article. It is on the ABC News site. And what they do is they, they measure the total carbon emissions per year per employee, right? So that, that does take into acknowledgement that some companies are big and some companies are small. And it is noticeable that, that Ubisoft, who are one of the biggest sort of makers of AAA games, who are famous for Daniel. Assassin's Creed, Far Cry, Tom Clancy games. Thank you for doing my job for me. Uh, they rank really low. Like their their car- total carbon emissions are quite low, comparative to something like uh, a Sony or an Apple or a Nintendo that kind of is at the other end. Nintendo, of course, being famous for Mario, Zelda, Donkey Kong. God, I'm surplus to requirement. Anyway, so it is an interesting comparison, nonetheless. Well, I can mad just say for that one, it's hard because Nintendo and Sony make consoles, and Ubisoft doesn't, which is probably why they're higher. Microsoft is sort of ranking somewhere in the middle of that ranking, and they they do. 
Don't I they? retract my point. They make consoles, but I think that, like I said before, they have. Well, is that net? Because total, total, total carbon, total okay. carbon emissions per year per employee. That is very interesting. I retract everything I said. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you need to retract. <laughs> I wasn't here. <laughs> no, look, I look. An I official th- apology coming from Daniel Van <laughs> And with that, we are out of time. Huge thank you to our guests in person this week, Meg Coffey, digital strategist extraordinaire. Thank you for joining us on the show. Thank you so much for having me. And Daniel Van Boom, technology correspondent at Capital Brief. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Uh, if you enjoyed this show, please leave a review on whichever one of those podcasty apps you use. Maybe you're a Pocket Cast person. Maybe you're an Apple person. You do you. But do leave a review. And with that, I shall leave you. My name is Mark Fennell. My voice went very high-pitched then. Catch you next week for another episode of Download This Show. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.